And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. In the studio with me today is the Reverend Mark Diedrich. Good to be here, Dan. And Dr. Hans Vogt. Thanks for having me. Well, gentlemen, President Obama, there's a good way to start a show. President Obama issued an executive order uh, last month, June the 15th, saying that the United States will stop deporting hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants and give them work permits. Our question is, one of our many questions is, has the administration sidestepped the country's legislative process? That's the gist of the discussion today. Um, As I understand it in particular, this executive order would apply to illegal immigrants who came to the U.S. before they were 16 and are currently younger than age 30. Uh, They cannot have any major criminal offenses, been in the country for at least five continuous years, and have graduated from a United States high school or have earned a GED or served in the military. That's just to capture our attention today as we have a program concerning what I guess you could call as executive overreach. And uh, what I'd like to do now is to step back a little bit and understand this whole area. Um, There's something called executive orders, and maybe, Hans, you could help us understand what that is all about in American policy and government. Sure, Dan. As you know, our Constitution divides power into three branches, uh, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And uh, it's, of course, the function of the legislative branch to make the laws. That's what the verb legislate means. Uh, And it is the function of the executive branch to execute, that is, to carry out or to put into effect the laws. Now, that sounds relatively straightforward, and on one level it is, but it does create a gray area. Uh, When you execute a law, when you put it into effect, there will be contingencies, there will be unforeseen circumstances, there will be nuances of interpretation. Uh, Who gets to decide those things? Well, over the years, of course, the president and the leaders of executive branch agencies have taken that power on themselves but that can begin to shade gradually away from interpreting law into making new laws and begin to encroach on the legislative power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it also goes uh, to the point where, for example, with this one and especially with the Defense of Marriage Act uh, with the DOMA. Yeah, that's another one, right. Yeah, where you have the executive branch saying, Yes, you have made a law, but we are going to ignore it. And so then you have a a very large clash between executive and uh, the legislative. uh, Yeah. Now, this program is, uh, in fact, all of Redeemer Broadcasting is nonpartisan. That's not to say that we, as individuals, are not a part of a a particular political party or whatever, but um, Redeemer is nonpartisan. And so I guess my question right up front is, um, uh, we're talking about a Democratic president here. Have there been cases in the past where a Republican president has exercised an executive order? Oh, absolutely. I mean, executive orders um, go back to the beginning. Um, 
and they have been more, much more prevalent in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly we've had Republican presidents do it as well, uh, beginning with Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. the first Republican president, um, and right on through um, Eisenhower and Reagan and um, both President Bush's. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's um, you know, that what happens with the presidency is you have a certain amount of frustration. Uh, sure. Where you, you've been given power. And yet, sometimes it's hard to put it into effect. It can be difficult to work with Congress. You know, you're dealing with 535 people in Congress. Uh, It can be difficult for Congress to get along, particularly at a time like this when you have control of Congress divided between the parties. One house controls the House, one house controls the uh, one party controls the Senate, uh, and nothing gets done. That's where it's most tempting for a president of whatever party to say, "I'm tired of dealing with you." I'm just going to go ahead and do what I think needs to be done. Right? Are there cases where um, this is this is relative? I'm sure, but where there have been good uh, executive orders that come down, um, good in the sense of maybe consistent, <laughs> maybe consistent with the Constitution, consistent with what the desires of the people are, and in terms of, in particular, uh, there maybe there's an urgency, um, a terrible threat out there life-and-death threat, and it really required an executive decision in order to protect the people? Well, and there's Uh, provision made for that, certainly. Um, I mean, one of the earliest examples of an executive order, of course, would be uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, suspending the writ of habeas corpus um, in areas, uh, for example, the state of Maryland, where there was a sizable minority who was seeking to get Maryland to secede and join the Confederacy. now, but there, the Constitution does say that habeas corpus may be suspended in cases of rebellion or invasion when the public right. safety requires it. And that was still a legal battle that was fought out um, after, even after Lincoln's death, mm-hmm. uh, the case of Ex parte Milligan. Mm. So, um, you know, I mean, there are emergency situations where uh, the president may need to act, particularly in, you know, military situations. But that's not the case a lot of times, especially now. Now, let's take this particular case. Here we have illegal immigrants in the United States. And that's not to say that we're against these people. I know I've got to justify everything anymore, but, you know, we're not against these people. It's just that we believe, firmly believe, that if you want to come to the United States, you do it properly. You get in line. and go through the proper uh, procedures, and we welcome you with open arms. And, in fact, America is built on immigrants. Uh, My folks came from uh, the Netherlands. Uh, Mark's, where's yours from? Uh, Germany. Germany, and yours from... uh, Sweden and England. Yeah, so um, we're all immigrants. Um, But uh, that said, uh, this particular executive order back on uh, June the 15th, Uh, 2012, saying that the United States would stop deporting hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants, giving them work permits. Um, How might that have been achieved, other than an executive order, more consistent with the proper legislative process? Well, this was an act that's been pending in Congress for a couple of years. It's known popularly as the DREAM Act. And Mm -hmm. um, to do exactly this, and that bill has gone nowhere, and it went nowhere even when the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress. Mm -hmm. So, And it's certainly not going anywhere now where um, control is divided. So, you know, essentially, um, this is a very clear-cut case to me of the president legislating. 
Congress won't pass the law, so mm-hmm. I'm going to do it uh, under my own uh, supposed executive authority. And, of course, election year politics play. Well, I was just going to mention, I mean, isn't it significant, I think, that this is an election year? Sure, including yeah. the Hispanic vote, which is a large and growing segment of the electorate. Obviously, both parties want to do that. And sure. Clearly, that enters into this as well. Mm-hmm. I wonder, in this particular case, why not put in place tighter border security measures before considering changes in the immigration law? In other words, fixed our borders first. Could you take care of that, Hans? <laughs> you know, I've watched uh, the Arizona thing and um, the governor down there, and, uh, you know, it seems like nothing's, in my opinion, the problem's just not getting fixed. Well, it's been a long-standing problem. Um, the Border Patrol has been around for just a little over 100 years now, mm-hmm. and um, it was originally created, not many people know this, uh, it was originally created way back in 1909, hmm. uh, not to keep out people from Mexico or from Latin America. It was created to keep out illegal Chinese immigrants, right, Japanese right. immigrants, who were entering into Mexico <clears throat> and then crossing the border right. northward. And, and, of course, for a long time, people have done, from Europe, did the opposite, that is, they came through Canada and simply mm-hmm. came down southward. Sure. Before we get it too much into this whole thing of uh, the problem, of the immigration situation is, you know, you mentioned Arizona, Dan, and uh, we just had a Supreme Court ruling in Arizona, and, of course, they sided with the administration on some points, but on one very significant point, they sided with uh, Arizona, Mm -hmm. who wanted to uh, stop, had to stop and check for illegal aliens if there's something else wrong in other words they're speeding okay stop you think sure. there's a they could be illegal aliens you could check for it after that went to the supreme court the supreme court says yeah that's constitutional mm-hmm. that should be maintained and they immediately the administration turned around and said wait a second we're not even going to take your calls now arizona you stop someone was, and you yeah. want to check them out we're not taking your calls we're not going to help you uh, and it's like the executive the again has spit, if you will, on the judicial branch now. Yes. You know, it's one thing to have kicked the legislature, but now that they've really uh, good opposed point. the judicial branch yes, as well. And that raises the specter of what is the executive branch trying to do? Are yes. they trying to be a king? No, that's a good point. Yes. Hey, uh, with that, we'll take a short break. We kind of ran over a little bit. Uh, You're listening today to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. We're talking about the general topic of executive overreach. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. 
We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. In the studio with me today, the Reverend Mark Diedrich and also Dr. Hans Vogt. I might mention Dr. Vogt is a professor, Ulster County Community College, and um, specializes in history as well as in particular. I think you specialized in your graduate work and doctoral work in uh, immigration. That's right. So uh, we'll probably get to that in a, in a future session here of uh, A Plain Answer. We're talking about uh, executive overreach, and Mark, before we open the mics again, you had a comment, so why don't you take it from here? My concern was uh, about this whole thing was we have a Constitution which consciously limited the power of the executive branch so that it could not, and not only executive, but even the legislative branch, so that it could not become a king. It would not turn into a king. It would not turn into an oligarchy where you have a a group of elite rulers. And what has happened with, I think, this executive privilege is it's moving definitely in the direction, you know, mm-hmm. we say king. Well, he won't have the title king, but in essence, you look at uh, President Obama now, he's got more power than Queen Elizabeth. So <laughs> it's, kinda <laughs> it's like, moving in that direction. It's kind of <laughs> like he's become King Obama. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is where we talk about the imperial presidency. Yeah, uh, and and you do see, I think, some mm-hmm. parallels to the situation in in the Roman Republic, where gradually more and more power was accumulated until finally the the uh, you, mm-hmm. you have a, you know the the actual title of emperor yes. uh, given, uh, and then of course um, not long after uh, the emperor becomes a god as well, mm-hmm. That's right. uh, and uh, combining right. both those functions. I mean, this is something the founding fathers. Um, Definitely foresaw. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the debates at the ratifying conventions, um, one of the biggest points that the anti-federalists, those who were opposed to the new constitution, brought up was that the executive would become too powerful. So they kind of foresaw that danger. Yeah. Patrick Henry uh, at the Virginia ratifying convention uh, said that the constitution, in his words, squints toward monarchy. Uh, and he said it would be very easy for the president to become king, particularly because the president uh, had been made commander-in-chief yes. of the armed forces. And, and Patrick Henry basically said, what are you thinking? Because the history, uh, if you look at every Republican history, mm-hmm. what happens 
Well, the military commander makes himself dictator or makes himself emperor, right. uh, seizes power in the name of restoring law and order. This is what Julius Caesar did in Rome. It is what, to an extent, mm-hmm. Oliver Cromwell will do in England. It's what um, just a few years down the road, Napoleon Bonaparte is going to do in France. Um, and so Patrick Henry said, you know, this is a yeah. dangerous situation. You better be careful here. Yeah, I'm frustrated by something as a just a common citizen, and I'm I'm thinking that a lot of folks are frustrated. Um, you get the feeling that you're totally helpless, and this whole thing is moving in a certain direction. It's out of control. You start get the feeling. I'm just saying emotionally. Here's where I'm at. I get the feeling it's out of control. Uh, these agendas are being shoved down our throats. Um, you got a administration that's you know, on the issue of pro-life, they're against life. They're in favor of abortion, which is terrible. And you get the feeling that um, um, the Constitution is not revered, nor there, nor is there a desire to really uh, abide by it. And yet that's what guarantees our rights here in this country. Those of us who are Christians feel that there was a lot of Christian content that got woven into that Constitution, so we're very comfortable with it. Um, I kind of start thinking, I wonder if the conditions on the ground today are perhaps even worse than what they were prior to the Revolutionary War. I mean, I, you know, certainly rights were being violated, et cetera, et cetera, you know, prior to that war. You know, what on earth has it compared to where we're at right now? It's, it's one of the thoughts that kind of come to my mind. Yeah, I, I can see this. And one of the problems, I think, that we see is people have uh, forsaken God. Yes. I think that is one of the key areas. And what happens, Francis Schaeffer, back in the 70s, did a, a video series and wrote a book, How Should We Then Live? And just described the philosophy throughout the years. Mm-hmm. And when he got to our modern age, he pointed out, there's so many people right now, you know, if you don't have a God who is caring for you, what do you want? Well, you mm-hmm. want, you know, personal peace and affluence, and you're willing to hand that off and hand it into the hands of a government, if you will, somebody who will take over. And you saw this back in the Clinton. Remember one mm-hmm. of the uh, town hall debates, and some guy stood up and he said, we are your children, you know, please oh, yeah. care for us. And yes. it, it was, I'm paraphrasing this, but it's that kind of attitude that yes. government take care of us. And, yes. and the founding fathers realized government can take care of you. It's God who takes care of you, which, by the way, is the reason why we have this whole myth of the separation of church and state that has grown mm-hmm. up and the more marginalization of the Christian church. Yes. I think I cut off um, Hans a little bit. You're on the flow of the history part of this also. Yeah. So um, anyway, I just wanted to get that out. That's that's the emotion I feel, and probably you do too, Mark, and maybe yeah. many of our listeners do. Now back to the historical foundation of all this. Hans, you were yeah. starting to um, ramp up to that. Well, no, I think what you see is um, certainly a couple of factors have changed um, in the 20th century. Um, first of all, our political philosophy has changed, um, and that's what, what Mark was just alluding to, that we yeah. now expect an activist government that will solve all our problems and meet all our needs. Well, yeah. um, the executive can react 
and, and can lead an activist government more effectively and efficiently than a Congress of 535 people can do. Yeah. Um, the U.S. is also now a superpower. Uh, and in a dangerous world, an executive can react more quickly in a crisis, again, than, than a Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have to take into account, I think, the technological changes that enable the government to communicate directly with all citizens. Um, and you now, on, on a minute-by-minute basis now, the executive can send out tweets and can yes. post updates on Facebook and can, can be in constant communication and create mm. the illusion of being a caring father, uh, protecting and caring yeah. for uh, his children. It's true. But that's a switch from the 19th century. You know, the 19th century presidents mm. were basically caretakers. Power existed primarily in the legislative branch. Presidents for the most part, did not think they had the power. Um, There was was even some debate in the early 19th century about whether it was okay for a president to veto a law other than on constitutional grounds. Um, And the the one real exception in the 19th century, of course, was was Abraham Lincoln, and there, of course, you had the crisis circumstance of the Civil War. Where you see it in the 20th century is, of course, beginning with Theodore Roosevelt, Mm-hmm. Um, who who revives the Lincoln model and and you know creates this idea of the presidency as the bully pulpit? Uh, that is, I'm going to use this platform uh, like a pulpit to to speak to the American people and exhort them and preach them and mm-hmm. say this is what we're going to do and this is how you ought to behave. Um, Woodrow Wilson continues that, um, mm-hmm. and then of course. Um, Theodore's uh, fifth cousin once removed, Franklin D. Roosevelt, hmm. uh, really, really picks that, that up yeah. <laughs> in the yeah. 30s and, and then with, with first the crisis of the Great Depression and then the bigger crisis of World War II. And then ever since that, of course, it has just continued to, to grow yeah. and grow. Well, lots to talk about here. When you mentioned FDR and my mind went to the different programs and the welfare and all of that, and that's probably another plain answer show down the road. Uh, talking about entitlements, um, I think the American public has become very attuned, very sensitive to the problems of the entitlement mentality. But uh, we'll leave that for another day. At least that's where my mind just went just now. But I, I like this notion that one of you guys brought out, basically of having a misplaced faith in government rather than God. And, you know, the government gets larger and larger, more and more laws. I hate to think about the number of laws on the books that were added in the past three and a half years. It probably would boggle the mind. Um, The increased power of the IRS, now that the Supreme Court has ruled that Obamacare is legitimate as a tax. And so, um, you know, how many more IRS agents have to have feet on the ground and uh, with the ability to come after us uh, because we have not obeyed some jot and tittle of the law. I think the IRS is an abomination in and of itself. (laughs) You know, seriously. I love uh, that about you, Mark. You just let her rip. It just... Yeah, because basically what it is, it's it's controlling people's lives, mm-hmm. and and our founding fathers would be abhorred yeah. to see that. I'd far rather see like a 
a value added tax. That way, the IRS, mm-hmm. if if I want to buy something, I buy it and pay the tax. Yes. If I don't, I don't buy it. Right. But uh, this way, the IRS is intruding into our lives all the time. You sit there yeah. and you fill out your tax forms. And you send it in, and you hope you don't get audited because oh, yes. you realize there's probably some weird little law they could nail you on. Oh, sure. You know, even though you're trying to be honest and pay all your taxes. Oh, sure. It's an outrageous system. It is. And guess what? The Bible predicted it. First mm-hmm. Samuel. First Samuel 8, when the people say, we want a king. We want a king. And uh, we read this uh, one of the other weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh and God told Samuel, look, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. That's true. There's a real sense in which when you look to government for all the answers, there's a real sense in which you've rejected God. Yeah, that's and so the, true. And then, of course, he says, guess what the government's going to do? The government's going to come in. It's going to take your sons and your daughters and make them work for you here and there. And it's going to take a tenth yeah. of all that you want. A tenth of everything. And that was uh-huh. seen by God as being... A terrible amount because that approached what he required of us people of of a tithe. Yeah. And so when government starts to supplant God, of course, they take more than what is due to God. I'd be happy with a tithe right now. That's right. (laughs) So would I. Now, I see we're out of time already for this edition of A Plain Answer. I think what we'll do is next week we'll continue the discussion and focus more on the whole immigration uh, aspect of it, particularly since uh, Hans, you're rather an expert in in that area. Um, but just a wrap up thought um, regarding uh, executive overreach, um, so we can close here today. Well, my mind goes back to uh, James Madison uh, and his Federalist Number Fifty One, where he addressed this whole issue of how do you create a government that is strong enough to do what it needs to do, but not so strong that it will Mm -hmm. uh, abuse power. And and the way he put it is, he said, you need to create a government in the first place that will be able to control the governed, but in the second place will be able to control itself. (laughs) And it's that second part that's the tricky part. That's the hard part. Uh, And the reality is when push comes to shove... Um, checks and balances don't quite work the way Mr. Madison envisioned because the president speaks with one voice, Congress speaks with 535 voices. Yes. Uh, the the balance of power, I think, is inherently weighted more in the favor of a president who is willing to use the power and take advantage mm-hmm. of it. And so the need for a president to have a heart that's of an honest and a godly heart since he has so much power in our day and age. Well, this has been A Plain Answer. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and the studio with me today has been the Reverend Mark Diedrich and Dr. Hans Vogt. A reminder that this broadcast has been put up as a podcast on our website. Check it out at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Also, please join us next week at this same time for another edition of A Plain Answer.